Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the second episode of the Zeitcast. So today's where we're really going to get into it. Yesterday, I talked a little bit about finding God at the intersections. So I was talking with somebody close to me last night about some of the things I wanted to talk about today, and I thought, I don't know if I can really do that because um, that might seem a little bit insane. Um, but the more I kind of sat with it, the more I realized this zaniness really is what this podcast is all about. So I'm not exactly sure who's going to be offended more or from what direction, but we're really going to dive in today. First of all, this is going to be the first segment I've done. I'm calling it for on Friday. I want to take the opportunity each week just to reflect on a few things that have kind of stirred me up, um, sometimes in terms of pop culture, news, um, pieces that I've read that I think are compelling, just some things that I'm into that I want to pass along to you. So this is the first edition of Four on Friday. And the first thing I want to talk about today on Four on Friday is Marianne Williamson. Um, as a person of faith and as a faith leader, I've been fascinated by the whole Marianne Williamson phenomenon as it pertains uh, to the to the election. And here's the thing. Um, my life has been kind of wild enough lately. I've not watched the last couple debates at length. Um, those of you who followed me for a while know I have some pretty pointed critiques of the Trump administration. Some things that for me are kind of off the grid of the left-right continuum as we've known it that I think are deeply problematic and troubling, especially for those of us who are people of faith. But that said, in terms of who I'm going to vote for. I mean, I, I have no idea. It's way too early. I sincerely do not have a dog in the hunt. None of that. But I'm always, again, interested in God at the intersections, especially in terms of faith and pop culture, faith and politics. So everything about this sort of emerging story with Marianne Williamson is just really intriguing to me. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with her, she's a bit of a self-styled spiritual teacher. Some would say kind of a new age guru. She's written a number of books uh, like Return to Love. Um, I was not super familiar with her until last year. I'd read some excerpts here and there and um, had the opportunity actually to go hear her in New York City. While she's not um, a self-professed Christian per se, there's a church that hosts her twice a month where she teaches. And it's really interesting. Like she'll give a lecture. She'll have about an hour or so after that of Q&A. And um, I'll, just, I'll never forget that night because I came in admittedly with, um, with a degree of skepticism. And because um, there's, there's kind of a lot going on. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like I've read some excerpts of, of things that she said in the past I feel like, um, like kind of any mystic, you're going for the, the, the kernel of that universal experience, the thing beneath the thing. And uh, some things I've read in excerpts of hers where I think she, kind of, she captures that in a way that's really lovely and wonderful. At the same time, part of what kind of is, is the rub for me about that kind of sort of self-styled new age thing is that precisely because it's not rooted in a particular faith tradition, it can feel a little abstract, um, especially in terms of like how you think about suffering, how you think about loss, how in the Christian tradition, how we would think about the, the, the cross. 
Um, that that's where I, I have some some different feelings about all this. But I had a really really interesting night listening to her. Before I go back there, though, I want to set up because this is for on Friday a piece that I think is really worth reading. Uh, Tara Isabella Burton wrote a great piece for the Washington Post this week that I just think is really provocative. It's called "The Self-Centered Religion," shared by Marianne Williamson and President Trump. Uh, the conviction you can shape the world with your mind is an American tradition. Now, um, I do think she's pretty stark in some of the contrast she draws here. I don't know if I would make some of the same equivocations exactly the same way, but I absolutely think that she's on to something. And um, I, I think maybe before I kind of get back in the story of, of that night, it's worth reading a couple excerpts here that I think are just worth considering. So in the post, uh, she writes, and she's a great writer, by the way, but Williamson has more in common with President Trump than she and indeed many voters might admit. And it's not just that both have used personal celebrity as a springboard into politics. At their core, both are also prime representatives of one of the most important and formative spiritual trends in American life. The notion that we can transform our material circumstances through faith in our personal willpower. Trump's authoritarian cult of personality and Williamson's woo-inflected belief in the power of self-actualization both come from the quintessentially American conviction that the quickest and surest route to ultimate reality can be found within ourselves. Skipping down a little further, on the surface, Americans are more religiously divided than ever. White evangelicals overwhelmingly support Trump. Meanwhile, the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated, who tend to lean left, continue to grow. But many Americans of almost every political and spiritual affiliation shared the inheritance of new thought ideology, a distrust of, in, of institutions and experts, a reliance on personal intuition and feeling, and a conviction that self-actualization will lead in, inexorably to a big, bigger house, a better job, a banging body. I think that's such an interesting critique. And I find myself right now in particular like, I'm really torn about the whole phenomenon because, and it brings me back again kind of to that night. On the one hand, I, you know, I come into that room and I, you know, I'd read some things that I thought were constructive, other things I had concerns about. But I will tell you this, and I don't know, I think especially for people who still come from a more fundamentalist background, I might lose some of y'all here, but I tell you the truth. As a person kind of raised in a Pentecostal context where there was a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and my own sense of kind of intuitive connection to the Holy Spirit, I frankly was surprised that night, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but listen to the lecture at how much I felt like the Holy Spirit was there. Um, there were some portions of the lecture that I thought were absolutely inspired. The fact that there is such an emphasis on love and on self-giving. I heard, I heard so much that I resonated with and then I resonated with on a soul level. I, you know, I took copious notes. I, th th there, she was in a kind of flow that night that I recognize in terms of where there's a kind of sense of the spirit in the room. Like I, I, I was really moved. And as a person who again would have plenty of critiques about Williamson's theology proper, I have to tell you, um, there was a really strange and interesting moment that came later because during the Q&A, there was a woman who gets up, as I recall, she's from Jamaica, and she tells a story about how um, in her hometown, she had got connected a few years ago with this guy who basically was kind of into some sort, some form of kind of uh, dark magic, and it was kind of a cult, and she got involved, and it seemed like it was good for a while. 
felt like she was placed under some kind of a curse. And how ever since that, and she starts crying as she's telling this, very heartbreaking. Um, how she feels like she's under this spiritual oppression and this darkness that she can't get back under and how it's affecting her and her family. And uh, Marianne, I just don't know what to do. And I'm sitting there watching all this unfold thinking, okay, so how is Marianne Williamson sort of the kind of new age guru going to handle this? And th this is not what I expected. So she asked her, ma'am, are you a Christian? And the woman says, yes. And I promise you, uh, she basically goes into what I would call in my tradition a form of deliverance prayer, where she, uh, in the name of Jesus, begins to kind of break off this spiritual oppression. And she specifically said, um, ma'am, I want you to know there is more power in the name of Jesus than any of these spirits that this man has conjured. And I'm like, what on earth is happening right now? I'm in some random liberal mainline church in New York listening to the New Age teacher do deliverance prayer. And it felt really powerful in the room. And she, the, the lady then went from crying to sobbing. And there was a real sense that, of freedom that was there that I thought was beautiful. And, and I walked away that night with just such a, a you know, a mixed bag of emotions, because on the one hand, I felt like, you know, there are things happening in this space where I recognize light I recognize love. I recognize empowerment. Um, here are people who are hearing, uh, some of whom for the first time, that they have a direct kind of access to the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that there is a universality to the Spirit where everybody uh, everybody can connect to the power of God, the presence of, uh, presence of God. There's so much that I resonate with. And so I was able to learn. I was able to be grateful for the experience. I was glad that I went. At the same time, it didn't take away some of my concerns. Um, the glibness to me with which she kind of talks about the cross. There was a line that night. In fact, I asked a question about this, which actually she filled it pretty aptly. But there was this whole line. I think it comes from the Course of Miracles, which she, which is more what she teaches from. But this whole idea of it's okay to look at the cross, but don't stare at it. It's kind of a negative understanding of the cross, which... Um, I'm not trying to go off on, on on too many trails here, you guys, but for people who are familiar with my own kind of Christian teaching, you know, um, I'm actually quite the critic of the kind of theology of the cross that turns it into God the Father was mad and angry and he has to beat up Jesus in order to forgive us. I don't think that at all is what the cross is about. But what I do think the cross is about is God fully identifies with us in our suffering um, God fully steps into our suffering with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And that that self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for me is the ultimate image of who God is and what it is to live in imitation of God. So it's, you know, coming at this kind of from a different perspective. And so, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I walked away from that night, both uh, moved and impressed with some things and also still troubled by some of the blind spots. And uh, the, I think, again, come from just not being anchored in a particular tradition. Part of what it really stirred up in me, um, even that night, was I realized, okay, um, part of what someone like Marion Williamson does, she uses a lot of uh, Christian language, uh, but not necessarily with the same content and, and meaning. 
Um, so part of what's happening here, though, is that it really was so much like what I, growing up in a Pentecostal context, have seen in what we would call the Word of Faith movement. And if you're not familiar with that, that's this whole kind of sub-movement within the Pentecostal charismatic, charismatic phenomenon where there's an emphasis on, it, it's another form of actualization. Speak things into existence. Um, half jokingly, people would say, name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it. Now, um, I what, what's What's interesting about that is I have seen people come into uh, to, to encounter something of that kind of teaching and at its best, because I once again do believe that God is involved in the world in dynamic ways. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit is, uh, in the words of the book of Acts, poured out on all flesh. I have seen that message at its most healthy as a kind of empowerment where people have a sense, hey, God is listening to me, and oppress people, like, hey, God is listening to me, and they feel a sense of agency. I have seen times and places where I feel like that's been used in a healthy way, but more often than not, I've seen it used in an unhealthy way, where it turns into uh, a kind of uh, legalism where, hey, so long as you click your heels together three times and you believe hard enough, if you wish hard enough, then God will do it. And if God doesn't do it, if God doesn't heal you, well, it's because you haven't had enough faith. There's something lacking and wrong with your faith. And, and it's just wild how much, in, though those worlds are very different, I feel like I'm, I'm hearing and seeing the exact same thing. So to bring this full circle, as Marion Williamson, and, I, and by the way, I don't think anybody seems to think that she's got a significant chance of being president, but that's not for me what the broader conversation is about. It's that intersection of faith and culture I'm always interested in. I'm watching her in what I have seen in these debates say some things around the Trump phenomenon and especially around race. And uh, ever since that night last fall, I followed her more closely. I actually think some of the ways that she names that and speaks into it are frankly brilliant, astute in a way that I desperately wish uh, white evangelical Christian leaders could grasp. I think that there's just um, there's something she taps into there in terms of being able to name um, some of the evil at work there, especially around some of these spiritual, what I would call principalities around race, that no, I don't believe that uh, it's just a matter of policy or wonkiness. There are spiritual dynamics. And there are times like some of the things she said about that, I'm like, not all, I, I couldn't say a more enthusiastic amen. I think she's so right. Yet at the same time, uh, what this story in the post underscores and several other stories that have come up and, you know, a number of friends that I follow on Twitter that I love and respect, a lot of concerns about things that she said in the past about, oh, I don't know, um, everything from, uh, well, again, it, it reminds me of kind of the whole word of faith phenomenon. Um, this idea, it would seem, that if people think hard enough, wish hard enough, believe hard enough, then they're going to be healed. And what would it mean to have a person in an elected office who thinks anything like that? And again, some of that might be put a little starkly, but I do think that there's things that she said in the past that are deeply problematic in this way. I understand why disabled people are concerned. I understand why they sense a kind of ableism that is there. Like, I, I feel like all of that is is legitimate. Another thing actually that kind of connects there um, between some of the stuff I see with the Marianne Williamson phenomenon that I've also seen kind of in the word of faith is that for all the stuff that I feel like she gets right and all the, thing, all the things that I feel like are really well expressed, part of what happens, I think, is that when you don't have this 
when you're not rooted in the particular story of Jesus of Nazareth, who is a brown-skinned Jew who lives in a particular context in a particular part of the world, and then you don't have, which I think is always so important when you're reflecting on the life of Jesus and, and any version of Christian faith, the faith of people from the underside. See, exactly where I feel like the word of faith movement gets so off in so many cases is that, um, especially in American context, it's not connected to the black church. Um, the story of actual oppressed people. It's a little too privileged. It's a little too white. You have to have a certain amount of money and access to be able to even enter some of those kind of spaces. Uh, some of these, these are ideas that have not been um, tried, or at least not in a way that works, kind of within the, within the third world. It's like it, 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 there's a detachment from the context of oppressed people. And I see the same thing in kind of the Marianne Williamson phenomenon, like for all the stuff about love and all the things about faith that I think are, you know, beautiful, if at times a little generic for me with, you know, it also very again, it's, 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 it's kind of a privileged space and frankly, a pretty white space. And while she quotes Dr. King, and I think that's good, I think it's good that she recognizes the move of God and the movement of the spirit in the civil rights tradition. Because that's what I always say, especially in terms of America. I mean, we have this rich tradition in our backyard for social change. And it's, y'all, it is in the black church. Like the only resource I feel like we have for renewal largely is in terms of a prophetic witness is in the black church. But because she's detached from that kind of particularity, then, you know, you've got the same kind of blind spots. I'm saying a lot of things, but I really want to come around to say a fairly simple thing. I've watched, especially as these stories have been unfolding, I feel like almost every critique I read lands in one or two places. It's like either she's just a complete kook, this woman is a quack, or people think she's some kind of a spiritual genius. And, you know, I, you know I'm just at a place in my life, like now more than ever, where I just... Um, I, I just really want to resist that. It is possible for someone to be profoundly right about some things and disastrously wrong about others. Don't think that I think I'm exempt from this. I am quite positive that I'm very right about some things and disastrously wrong about others. Now, I'm not sure what those things are, but, I, but I'm sure there's things I'm disastrously wrong about too. I just think it requires a little bit more nuance and perspective. And in this polarized moment that we're in, I feel like everything's read that way. Like everybody is either like, you know, we deify into a saint and they can do no wrong or th this person is a demon. And it's just not like that. You know, fundamentalism, the kind that I come from to a point, gives you one version of that. But um, I think secular culture has its kind of equivalent, like that if you've transgressed in like one way, then all of a sudden you have nothing of value to say and you negate everything. No, like I hear some of the things that Marianne says and I think like, oh, I think there's a kind of real sharp spiritual savvy and even genius there. And other things where I'm like, man, that is a massive blind spot and a real concern. Both of these things can be true at the same time. I'm not trying to do too much inside baseball with my charismatic friends, but because this is where I come from. Um, one of the ways that this has been especially pressing on my mind lately, um, I have a lot of friends who come from what uh, some of us would call revival culture, some of these newer charismatic expressions. And I have a lot of difficult conversations with kind of friends in this moment because I feel like, uh, not unlike I don't discount everything that happens with Marianne, I see things happen in revival culture spaces that really encourage me in terms of 
people um, coming to understand that they have access to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, in ways that I feel like are completely real and legitimate and good. At the same time, what I am seeing, and I'm seeing this in different pockets, whether um, it's a church like Bethel, which is a big charismatic movement out of Redding, California, or uh, Rick Joyner in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from. Some of the leaders of these movement, I just happened, I stumbled onto Benny Johnson, wife of Bill Johnson's uh, Twitter feed the other day, and I feel like everything right now is right-wing conspiracy theories and these very truncated, it just, um, I don't mean to go to a whole long riff, but it's, it's, it's troubling for me. And what it goes to show me is not, uh, the takeaway for me is not, oh, these people don't hear from the Holy Spirit or God doesn't work there. I, no, I don't think that at all. I absolutely think there's a legitimate movement of the Spirit that happens in these spaces. But what happens for anybody who's ever been used by the Holy Spirit in any way, and I think that actually translates even beyond church spaces, anybody who's ever had a powerful gift, you think that because you're gifted in one way or b because you've encountered God in some way, um, there's this dynamic thing that's inside you that has a certain impact or effect when it goes out into the world. You think because you have that and it works that everything you say and do is right until especially, I think, uh, in, in charismatic spaces when you're kind of living inside of a bubble and it's very insular and insulated. Now, all of a sudden, you're kind of above critique. Um, what I find happening is that especially among younger people within revival culture, if there's anything good that's happened in the last charismatic movement, there's been this revelation of the heart of God, the character of God, um, the heart of the Father. You know, people are, are, are lifting their hands and they're singing songs like, good, good Father. Well, if you really believe that God's a good, good Father, then the, but the culture around you is authoritarian, is homophobic, um, is, is, is buying into some of the, you know, the, the really problematic racial stuff around the Trump phenomenon. There's a disconnect there. And I find the younger people, the folks kind of 40 and under, are simply not buying it. And there's kind of a generational rift that's happening there. But it just, it, I think it just puts those of us who are people of faith in kind of this complicated place because, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like people should be dismissed as quacks and buffoons for chasing down a mystical experience with God. I think those things are real and I don't negate any of it. But I also think it's really tricky when you think that just because you've had some kind of experience with God that now all of a sudden everything that tumbles out of your mouth is, is right. And that's what happens. And, I, and footnote, by the way, part of my concern about the rise of the whole Trump phenomenon is I think it's precisely because people sometimes come up in cultures that are that are very authoritarian, you know, that it kind of sets up this larger thing. Our leader is right and appointed by God. Everything they say is good. That's not a healthy way for anybody to think. No leader, and myself included, um, is above critique. We all need permission to be able to explore these things. What's right? What's good? What's bad? And everything doesn't have to be painted with such a broad brush. That's, that's kind of what I'm hungry for right now. And maybe that's too much to ask, but a little bit more nuance in some of these conversations, which by the way, believe it or not, the lion's share of what we're talking about today really is on number one. But since this is four on Friday, brings me to number two, because if you are talking about Marianne Williamson and you're talking about Bethel and you're talking about charismatic Christianity, what's the next logical place to go but Quentin Tarantino? Am I right? Like, what else would we be talking about? Because also in the last week, while well, I got a couple of days to uh, be with, with my family, I was able to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which um, uh, I, I know this probably freaks some people out because people who are familiar with me know that I have certain convictions about Christianity and nonviolence. 
that the God revealed in Christ uh, is the God on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Here's the thing, y'all. As For me, this is not even some kind of a compromise here. While I believe that the God revealed in Christ ultimately is nonviolent and calls us to uh, to a life of nonviolence. I also believe that there is a place for violent stories. I have read the Old Testament, y'all. There's a place for violent stories. So the violence, uh, you know, per se in Tarantino films has never necessarily scared me off. I feel like there's a lot of genius there, but there are problematic things there as well, which has been another part of the kind of just the interesting conversations happening around uh, kind of in culture this week in particular. So I, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which by the way, short review is that I really liked it. You know, it's Tarantino at his most um, ambling in some ways. There's a lot of story within the story. Um, I thought it was really funny. Um, I th- there are a lot of interesting things going on in the film for me that that I liked. But I also think there's legitimate pushback and critique. Some of this in terms of the, what comes out of this particular film, uh, because and I I won't go into all this at length, but because there is uh, this whole riff on or sort of retelling of uh, the Manson murders. Uh, Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate in the film. Uh, she's a great actress, but in the film, like she doesn't, she doesn't have a lot of lines. So it's kind of revived this conversation about Tarantino as to whether or not there's a through line of misogyny in his work, um, which I think, you know, really interesting conversation. By the way, uh, just because I thought this was a brilliantly written review and probably the best thing I read on the internet this week in terms of just virtuoso writing, Caitlin Flanagan wrote a review for The Atlantic called Tarantino's Most Transgressive Film about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Read it just for the writing. It's a brilliantly written review. Uh, Caitlin Flanagan, Tarantino's Most Transgressive Film. That's just a beautiful review, so you should read that. But the article that really grabbed me and that actually does connect with some of the broader things I was talking about today, Alison Wilmore wrote this great piece for BuzzFeed called A History of Women in Tarantino Movies that to me just gets to the heart of what I was talking about in terms of nuance. Uh, Because, you know, I know it's come out in more recent years, um, some of the issues that Tarantino has had. um, I know when Uma Thurman was in Kill Bill, um, uh, he had to drive a car in a dangerous scene. She was injured. Uh, several things kind of went down. The fact that he knew about some of the stuff that happened with Harvey Weinstein, who produced a number of the films, but didn't talk about it. number of things I think people would agree are problematic. But one of the things I like about Wilmore's piece so much is that it's, it's just such a nuanced kind of um, contextualized look at how women are actually portrayed in Tarantino's film. So key section for me is this. She says, Tarantino's filmography now sprawls over three decades, starting with work that was key to shaping the tone in ways both great and terrible of 90s indie cinema and stretching all the way to Once Upon a Time, a studio feature about a middle-aged male friendship that's a wild outlier on a summer schedule of franchise installments and remakes. And when we look at that body of work through the lens of the most memorable women characters Tarantino has put on screen, it includes both some thrilling highs and some persistent perverse blind spots. Listen to this. His work resists being painted with a broad brush despite the tendencies to hold him up either as an unimpeachable genius or an anti-feminist nightmare. 
I love that sentence. And even that idea of unimpeachable genius, because like in the same way that kind of growing up in Pentecostal charismatic world, there was this idea that if you're anointed by God, if God uses you in this way, well, then you do no wrong. None of your ideas could be wrong. None of your sermons could be stupid. Nothing you ever say or do is wrong because God anoints you. I feel like the sort of secular counterpart to that is like, has been historically, if you're a genius. Well, I mean, hey, that guy, the guy's a genius. He can't be a misogynist. If he was, it, we could overlook it because he's a genius. Well, no, nobody's above critique. But at the same time, I would want to contend that I think in the broader body of Tarantino's work, this is actually a really interesting conversation. And what I love about her piece is that from there, she goes through and actually holds up every significant woman in a Tarantino film and critically evaluates them. And as you might anticipate, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think it's thorough. I think it's helpful. Here's the broad point. Once again, it's possible for somebody to be really, really smart and on about one thing and have a really, I mean the phrase, the perverse blind spot over here. Both of those things can be true. And one does not negate the other. The fact that there's a significant gift, that there's a significant insight, um, significant creativity, does it negate something that's problematic? But something that's really problematic, does it negate the fact that people still amble in um, to some really significant truth-telling sometimes? So I just thought that was a great, great piece Allison Wilmore did for BuzzFeed, would encourage you to check that out. So the last two things, much, much shorter for a four on Friday. Big little lies, you guys. I have not done a lot of TV watching these last few months as I've been settling into Oklahoma City, but I'm telling you guys, as a person who loves thrillers and I've always enjoyed kind of David Kelly produced series, this HBO show is just so delicious to me. Um, finally got to catch up on it. Of course, amazing cast, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon. Um, uh, oh, gosh, uh, the whole cast is so good. Meryl Streep joins in season two. Zoe Kravitz is phenomenal in the show. I, I just have to say, and, uh, and I'm not saying that there are blind spots there, that it, that it's perfect. But really, this is the golden age of TV right now, you guys. And just as a thriller I just thought it I just thought it was phenomenal. Every episode, I'm so sad that season two is over. I'm hoping there could still be a season three. I know there's talk about that. But what a great show. So like if you're not afraid of getting a little dirt under your fingernails in the same way that I'm open about my and some of you might judge me for my um love for Tarantino films. I just think Big Little Lies is a really good time. I mean, like just, you know, curl up on the couch eat popcorn, binge watch. I just, I had the best time. And I've needed to say that out loud to, to somebody. So big little eyes, you guys. I just think it's tremendous. And last but not least, um, Bon Iver released a new single a couple weeks ago called Faith. And I don't know how to fully explain the magic behind that song because I think it somehow just bypassed all of the sort of mental gymnastics I typically do. Maybe I could put it on the table like a frog in a biology class and dissect it, but I don't even want to. It's a magical song in the way that I feel like every once in a while, um, Bon Iver just nails. There's something so spiritual. There's a yearning. There's an ache that's there. Uh, the lyrics are beautiful. Uh, there's just a, a poetic quality. I think last week in my car, I may have actually played it 30 times consecutively because I'm like that if I'm into something. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song. So if you're looking for something perhaps less polarizing than Marianne Williamson or Tarantino, 
Tarantino or even Big Little Lies. I feel like Bon Iver might be my safest pick of the week to check out, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. And that's the last feature I have for Four on Friday. So thanks so much for joining me on the Zeitcast. Thank you guys for hanging around while we're jamming this out. Of course, we're just two episodes in, so still figuring out a lot of things, but so appreciate you taking time to be with us. I would love to hear your feedback. I'd love to know things that um, you'd like me to talk about. We're certainly going to have some great guests in the very near future, so please know we'll be uh, shaking that up a bit. Um, if you would like to hit me up on Twitter, I love to interact that way. So uh, tag me at, at the boy on the bike. I'm Jonathan A. Martin on Instagram. Uh, also, if you go to jonathanmartinwords.com, there's a link to my Patreon account, especially now that we're doing this five days a week. It is uh, quite the labor of love, though I'm so excited to be doing it. Would certainly appreciate your help in making this possible and would love to stay in touch. And last but not least, I need to be able to say today, I'm so grateful for my producer, Reese Black, who is killing it. I mean, five days a week is a significant commitment, you guys, and doing this both in audio and video form. Um, he's a genius. I'm thrilled to have him with me, and we're having such a good time. So thanks for joining me for the second Zeitcast. Hope you have a great weekend, and I will see y'all back here on Monday.